0: Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 through 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to be changed, to be corrected, and to come in alignment with you. Pray that you would meet us where we are, whether we're in a seat in this building or on the street, or in our bedroom at home watching on live stream. Be real to us and break into our hard places. Help us to feel your presence. Give us peace and I pray that this power that we're talking about, we would see evidence of that working in us and through us from the inside out, and that we would be ambassadors of reconciliation to others, just as you reconciled us to yourselves. In Jesus' name, Amen. All
1: right. Okay, so we are starting a new sermon series today, uh, working through the uh, first and second epistles to the church in Thessalonica in Greece, and this was uh, one of Paul's many church plants. And if you were to go to Acts chapter 17, you'd see the story kind of playing out in history there. Um, And and as you read through that passage, what you see is that it was a city in which when Paul went there and preached to them, uh, a lot of people believed, in fact, so many people turned to Jesus that it caused quite a stir. And those who became jealous of what Paul was doing started a riot, and Paul and Silas had to escape with their lives in the middle of the night. So it was quite a contentious little uh, church plant he was doing. Um, and it, because he had to leave in such a hurry, he didn't have a chance to follow up uh, with these new converts before he had to leave. And so uh, he sends Timothy back uh, to check in on them to see how they're doing and how they're getting along. And Timothy has just returned and he's reported to Paul all that he's seen and heard. And there were some good things and there were some problems there. And so Paul immediately sits down and pens this letter back to them. And uh, in this opening chapter, what Paul is doing is he is recalling how it was that they became believers. It's it's a reminder and it's a summary of how they became believers. Christians under his ministry. And and I think as a result, this passage now becomes for us a great window into understanding just what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. See, what it's dealing with here is how can you be sure that you're a Christian? How can you know for sure? How, How can you become one if you're not? What is the essence of what it means to become a Christian. That's what we're dealing with here today. And I think this is an important subject for us to study, uh, especially here at City Church, because we spend a lot of time here um, deconstructing the religion in which most of you were raised. Uh, We spend a lot of time trying to uh, dissect and understand the um, hyper-religious culture of Appalachia. Because, you see, our, our religious culture is one in which we are very often told that in order to become a Christian, or at least to be a good Christian, it takes the discipline of living an outward life of morality and purity, see, trying to stay away as much as possible from the really bad sins, the really big sins out there. And see, as the line often goes, I mean, after all Jesus did in dying for you, it's the least that you could do to serve him and obey him, and to keep your life clean and all that. And as a result, so much of the religion in our culture is about outwardly trying to force your heart to live and to act in certain ways, and to use whatever external means are necessary to get you there, like guilt and shame and fear, whatever it takes to keep you in line. And what Paul is telling us here, that's not Christianity at all. Now, the the other reason why this is such a critical study for our church here today is because as a result of all this, there's a rapidly growing number of people um, who have simply given up on church. They've seen too much hypocrisy in the shallow games of pretending. Uh, They've seen through the shallow veneer that Christianity often portrays where Self-righteous people look down upon and judge those that they find ways to be beneath them and their actions, their speech, their thought, their lives. And so these people tend to become very cynical of the church and a lot of them have just walked away. And and they think that they've rejected Christianity when they simply rejected a, a version of religion that masquerades as Christianity And I think it's a version that we would be equally critical of here today. And so it's important to understand that if you're gonna reject Christianity, you better make sure you're rejecting the real thing and not some version of it that left a bad taste in your mouth. See, even if you've been raised in the church and you think you know what Christianity is all about, are you sure? Listen, there's a lot of very legitimate reasons for walking away from the church. The church has abused and hurt a lot of people in horrible ways. There's a lot of shallow and manipulative games being played in the name of God in people's lives. But was that genuine Christianity? Or was it a fake version? Masquerading as a real thing. I mean, think about this. Would thousands of people have given their lives for the version of Christianity that you've rejected? I really doubt it. And so it's, I think, important as we start our study here today, trying to understand what Paul uh, says makes us a genuine Christian, that we listen and learn to what he has to tell us. And what he, he begins by doing is telling us that you become a Christian through the gospel. Verse 1, uh, uh, chapter f- 1, verse 5, he, he calls it our gospel. In chapter 2, 2, he calls it his gospel. 2, 8, 9, the gospel of God, and chapter 3, the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> so clearly what Paul, uh, his understanding of the gospel is uh, is critical to what it means to actually be a Christian. And and now I want you to notice how the gospel is described here. There, notice the synonym that Paul uses for the gospel in both verses 6 and 8. He calls it the message. And what he means by this is that the gospel has a content to it. It's a series of words, it's a series of ideas, it's a series of assertions. <clears throat> in other words, excuse me in other words you you don't become a Christian simply by hearing about morality and goodness in general. Uh, you don't become a Christian simply by hearing preaching about um, love in general. you you don't become a Christian simply by hearing Uh, preaching about hell and wrath in general and deciding that you want to take the escape hatch that God has offered. Rather, what Paul says, it is the gospel. And see, our our Appalachian culture has been built around uh, big tent revivals where powerful persuasions of guilt and shame for the poor life that you've been living Right, where the survival instincts of fear of hell and judgment bring people down the aisle over and over again. It's, it's often built around um, homecoming Sundays where we gather back all the wayward and try to get them back into church for a Sunday. But, but is all of that the gospel? Well, not necessarily. It could very easily simply be the outside-in pressure that religion offers to save yourself. And you see, the gospel is not just a little bit different version of that or maybe a different way of trying to articulate the same thing. It is the exact opposite. And I think that's why Paul chose the term gospel to describe this process because the gospel in Greek literally means good news. It takes the word good and the word news puts it together into a, a new word and it's called gospel, Right? And that's how it describes this process. Now, the reason it does so is because good news talks about what Jesus did. Whereas religion is all about good advice. It's about what you have to do. See, the whole point of our religious culture is how you can work your way back to God. What steps do you have to take? What decisions do you have to make? What commitments do you have to take on if you're gonna find your way back to God? Whereas the gospel is all about how God worked his way to you through the life and the death of Jesus. I mean, you think about it, that's why we celebrate Christmas because he actually came after us, He, he pursued us. He came to rescue us. See, this is the exact opposite. See, the question is, do you work your way to God? through religion? Or does God work his way to you through the gospel? They are the utter opposite of one another. These are not even close. Now, before we move on here, let me just define the gospel for a minute. And it's a definition I give you almost every week, so I'm sure you've got it memorized by now. But maybe you can start to understand just why I keep giving this to you over and over again, because it is so critical to what it means to actually be a Christian. And, and also because you're living in a culture that sells you a version of Christianity that is the exact opposite of what the scripture teaches here. So here's a definition of the gospel. On the one hand, you are far more sinful than you ever imagined. Far worse, far more messed up than, than your most honest, Confession: You're much worse than that. And yet, on the other hand, you're far more loved than you ever dared hope or dream. And here's the kicker. You're both at the same time. Always both at the same time. <clears throat> now, if you think about it, liberal versions of Christianity have the love part down, right? I mean, God just loves everybody, no matter what. That, that's his job, right? But it's a love that cost him nothing because there's no real sin to have to pay for. And therefore it actually rescues you from nothing. And so it's, it's nice, it's, it's sweet, it's kind of like your grandpa's love. It, it's just his job to love me, it's what he does. But then you have conservative versions of Christianity where they have the wrath and the judgment part down really well, right? And God is out to get everybody for all the wrong things that they're doing. But it's built on this ongoing fear that you can never outrun because it's a debt that's never fully paid for, unless you can live a really good life, which none of us seem to be able to do. And you see, I think that's all most people think that they have the option to choose between. You either have a loving God who never judges, or you have a judging God who doesn't fully love, but neither one of the gospel. Because what we have in the gospel is a God who hates sin, more than the most hellfire and brimstone preacher out there, but yet one who willingly takes all that judgment upon himself so that it is fully paid for in Jesus for us. Which means that we don't just get God's forgiveness this time, but you better watch out. We actually get his righteousness. See, our sin is credited to Jesus, who pays it on the cross by dying the death that we deserve to die But then Jesus' perfect righteousness is credited to our spiritual accounts by living the life that we owe to God in our place, but could never pull it off. And the result is that God now looks at us as if we are holy and righteous and beautiful. Did you know that God adores you? The the prophet Zechariah tells us that God constantly is writing love songs that he's singing over your heart. Now, <clears throat> that's not how we naturally think of God, do we? We think that God might love me, barely, right? And again, not after that. Maybe after I change this or fix it. That, the picture that God gives in the scripture is so much different. You are an object of beauty that he cannot stop looking at and singing songs over. But you see, that's only possible when you can hold both halves of the gospel together at the same time. See, a good religious person will say, well, of course God loves me. I accepted Jesus as my savior. I walk the aisle. And a good liberal person will say, well, of course God loves me. That's his job, to love everybody. But only a Christian who's been transformed by the gospel can say, I can't imagine how it's true. Why would God love somebody as messed up as me? I don't get it, it's, it's amazing. It's unbelievable, but it's true. So that's the first thing. What changes us is the gospel, and it has content to it. Now, secondly, how how do you know if you're getting this stuff, right? How do you know if you've actually become a Christian through the gospel? Because obviously it's pretty important for us to figure this out. How can you know for sure? And you see, Paul tells us here that you know that you're becoming a Christian through the gospel when those words become a power. See, what does Paul say? Verses four and five, we know that you belong to God because what we said to you, this message, this gospel, didn't just come to you in words, but it came in power. Not just in words, but in power. Now, think about this. A cynic who does not believe in Christianity does not believe in the assertions of the gospel. Right, no, I'm in charge of my own life, nobody else tells me how to live or act. A religious person is somebody who believes in all the assertions of the gospel, they believe in Jesus, they believe in the cross, they've got all their facts down, but a Christian is somebody who not only believes in the assertions of the gospel, but that the gospel has actually become a power within them. Now what does that mean? And I want you to notice that the Bible doesn't just say this here. It says it all over the place. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Right? It doesn't bring the power of God. It doesn't result in the power of God. But it is the power of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, God made the light of the gospel shine in our hearts to give us a light of the knowledge of the glory, God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. The, the gospel displays the very glory of God shining out through all the chinks in our crackpots that he's placed it in. And listen, here's one of the ways that you can tell if the gospel is becoming a power within you or not. <clears throat> Religious people love to study Christianity, right? Lots of charts, diagrams, outlines, always trying to understand more and more details of how all this fits together, often obsessed with end times and how everything is gonna to fit together on this timeline. I mean, even seekers come as investigators, asking, is this true, is, is this reasonable? And, and they should. But you see, a Christian is a person who's come to realize that they are being investigated by God. You sense that there's a power that's dealing with you. You are being searched out. You are being grabbed. You are being exposed. See, this is not a kind of intellectual Christianity that you can control with your charts and your outlines and your doctrines. It takes you up. You don't take it up because there's a power that's dealing with you. And you see, how does that happen? I mean, it's not a decision, you know, like walking the aisle is. But he tells us in verse 4, he has chosen you. That's how it happens. He invades your world. He breaks into your world at Christmas. He breaks into your heart through his Holy Spirit. He's always pursuing you. See, Christianity is not a set of beliefs that you take up. It's a power that takes you up supernaturally. Now, let me tell you how it often starts, because it often starts with this horribly confusing feeling of being disturbed, being upset. Um, and, And I think it's important that you understand this. See, so many things in life that you once found valuable, things that once defined you as a person, things that you're kind of comfortable with, this is who I am, right? Things that have given you a sense of identity, something that's just core to who you are as a person, like being a mother, or being a successful person, or having money, or, or having people like you. You start to begin asking yourself some hard questions like, well, what's the point? This doesn't seem to be going anywhere. If this is, if this is all there is, why am I bothering? Is any of this gonna last? This is just controlling me and making me miserable. So you start asking the big questions in life, there's a disturbance in the force, and you can feel it, right? I mean, Moses was having a really nice life, living rich and happy in the courts of Pharaoh until he heard the call. Matthew was living the high life as a tax collector, skimming off all that he wanted to live the good life, Until he heard the call and started following Jesus. Have you heard that call? Is God messing with you right now? See, how does this call come to you? (coughs) Frankly, some of you are dealing with that call right now and don't even know it. You think it's just a painful divorce that you're going through, all you can see is some debilitating illness that you're facing. You're feeling the loss of kids moving out of the house. You're dealing with the loss of a job. Or maybe you're dealing with some great failure or a relationship that's fallen apart. That is God dealing with you. He's coming at you, and he's upsetting your old world and your old foundations and all the things that you've always counted on. Now, that's how it often starts, but eventually it moves from being a messy, unwanted disturbance. And it starts to transition your eyes and your heart into being able to see the glory of Jesus, seeing his beauty. Seeing, when we talk about the glory, the word glory literally means weight, right? It's heavy, man. It's significant. It's weighty. And what happens is, eventually you will begin to see that Jesus is more weighty than what I thought people used to think of me. Jesus is becoming more weighty than my safe, comfortable life. Jesus is becoming more weighty than the need to have perfect kids that make me look good. And you see, you know the gospel is coming at you and it's sinking in When though the facts of the gospel may have always been there your entire life. See, I've, I've always known this stuff. Suddenly the weight of it begins to grip your heart. And the weight of his claims begin to press in on you and disturb you. And you start to see the all or nothingness of who he is and what he claims and what he demands. See, suddenly there's no more room in your life for negotiations with this kind of God. You can't fit this kind of Jesus into your life anymore, but you have to fit your life around him. See, you can't just be religious on Sundays and uh, for 15 minutes every morning during a quiet time and then turn back to your own life. Not anymore. Because you feel the pressing weight of the ultimatum to give everything over to him. And, And listen, I think there's no better way to put this than to say that when the gospel becomes a power, you sense the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And if you haven't experienced that yet, if you haven't experienced the all or nothing claim of his glory on your life, then the gospel simply has not come to you yet, no matter how many facts you may know about Christianity. Because until that happens, what will will happen to you is all the delusions of self-rule that are still in your heart will filter every one of Jesus' words so that you don't really hear what he's saying. And you'll think you'll know, Oh, I get it. I know what Jesus says. I know what he asks, and you'll completely miss it. But you see, when the gospel comes, it breaks through with its power, and Jesus either becomes your everything or he's your nothing. He changes everything or he changes nothing. See, this kind of God can't merely be your helper or your guide or your comforter anymore, but he has to become your everything. And listen, I don't know any more stark way to put this than to simply say you cannot be a generic Christian who's still enslaved to the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. you got to give all that up. And you have to see that Jesus is your life and that Jesus is your liberty and that Jesus is your happiness. Because there is no God in country. There's only God, right? As Jesus tells us elsewhere, if your eye gets in the way, pluck it out. If your hand gets it in the way, cut it off, because there is no life apart from God. Now listen, you, you know the power of the gospel is, has come to you when you stop asking questions like, what am I gonna do with Jesus? How is he gonna help me? Is it worth the cost of following him? I mean, I'll think about it, as long as I don't have to give up this or, or that. No, the gospel is still just words for you if that's how you th- think of this. But you have to start asking the question, what is God gonna do with me? What, is, what does he want from me? It's all or nothing. Now, if you're being disturbed by everything I've just said this morning, that's a good thing because you should be. On the other hand, if you're still saying, no, no, listen, I know what Christianity's all about. I've always known what's the big deal here. That's a really bad sign. Because the gospel is a living thing that comes alive and pursues you and messes with you. And until it has, you haven't dealt with the real thing yet. Now, finally, I think you come to know that you are becoming a Christian through the power of the gospel when you start to see all the false rescues that you've been counting on your whole life in his place. Notice what he says in verses 9 and 10. He says, here's how I know the gospel came to you. He talks about these other churches and he says, they tell how you've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now see, as we said earlier, the first half of the gospel is that you're far more sinful than you ever imagined. I mean, even good religious people understand at least part of their sin. But when the gospel becomes a power, you suddenly start to see just how deep and pervasive that sin actually is. And particularly, Paul says, you suddenly come to see all the alternatives, the counterfeits that you've been resting in. And now they become exposed for the weak things that they really are listen, before the gospel comes to you, you think there's really only two alternatives to life. Either I can keep control of my own life or I can lose control and give it over to him. And so it's easy for us to think that Christianity is merely, I can either be free and of course run the risk that my freedom won't really be able to save me in the end. We'll just have to see. Or I can give up all of my freedom and I can submit myself fully to him. But when the gospel starts to sink in, it clarifies your vision so that you can begin to see all the idols that you've already been worshiping. I mean, the classic example of this is with rebellious teenage years, right? Where everybody wants to be free to pursue my own agenda. I just want to be me, right? As long as I am wearing the exact same clothes that she's wearing, and I have the exact same haircut that they have, and they have the exact same group that everybody else has. Because you think you're free, but you're just exchanging one set of rules from your parents for another set of rules from your peers. And you're still not free, it's just a new kind of slavery. And and you see, it's interesting here how Paul says in verses nine and 10, you guys turn from idols to serve the living and true God. And yet, Paul was there. I mean, in fact, he was the one who led them out of that idolatry. And so he understood, I think, what we might miss and that is that these guys were not pagans who had worshiped the gods of earth and fire and sex and farming and all the other gods like the, the the pagans had. But he knew that these guys became Christians out of Judaism. These guys were Jewish converts who never worshiped any idol ever. They only believed in one God. And yet he says, You walked away from your idols. And I think what he's telling us by this is that everybody has this sense of judgment on their heart. Everybody feels a sense of condemnation inside of them, even religious people. Whether you believe in God or not, everybody has this voice telling them that they're a loser. Telling you that you're a nobody. That you're worthless unless you can perform. Unless you can please people. Unless you can be better than other people with your success. Everybody feels the need to prove themselves or they're going to be condemned. And, and it's just natural to the heart of all mankind. And everybody is trying to silence that voice with the efforts of their life. And as a result, everybody is looking to something to rescue them. If I could just be pretty enough, if I could just be popular enough, if I could just be successful enough, if I could just be unique enough, whatever. And and when Paul tells these guys, you turn from serving idols to the living God and to wait for his rescue through Jesus, Paul is telling us that the only alternative to being a Christian is to be enslaved to something else. See, there's something that your heart is telling you, that will rescue me from the coming wrath. And whatever it is, you will serve it, and it will become your master, and it will own you. See, the alternative to turning your life over to God is not that you have to give up all your freedoms. You know, now I gotta start to work hard to become a better person, a, a more moral person, I gotta get my life together. No, but it's, you have to give up all the idols that you're already serving. The condemning voice of your parents, the, the elusive career that haunts you, a, a mom who has all her chicks in a row, finding the perfect mate and so you see the real alternative here is I can either continue in the slavery of these delusions or I can turn to Jesus who alone has the power to actually rescue me from that coming wrath that haunts me you see when the gospel sinks in the issue is not should I hang on to my freedom or should I become a Christian the real issue is I can either remain a slave to all the things that I think are going to rescue me, which have never worked yet and they never will work, or I can turn to Jesus who took that wrath for me and therefore who can actually save me and rescue me from it. (coughs) Listen, far too many women are looking for a man to rescue them from the drudgery of their lives. Cinderella's looking for that handsome prince. And far too many of us men are filled with fears of failure, the sense that deep inside we're really just an ugly brute beast, and we're looking for some beautiful princess who kisses us and turns us from the ugly frogs that we know we are into a handsome prince. And you see, the fairy tales are filled with these hopes. Everybody has something that they're looking to, something that will bring them this sense of rescue that they need. Listen, follow the trail of your emotions if you want to find what idols are controlling your life today. What things bring you the greatest fear of losing it? What accusations fill your heart with such defeat that you can't go on? What things most easily lead you to anger and bitterness? What thing, if you lost it, would you make, make you feel like life just isn't worth living anymore? Whatever it is, it's always because there's something that your heart is telling you, this will rescue you. And it's either being threatened or it's being taken away or you're afraid that you're not gonna be good enough to keep up. And you see the gospel comes along and shows you that you can either have the slavery of those things or you can have Jesus. And when you have that, the gospel has dawned on you. See, there really is a handsome prince will make you into a beautiful queen. There really is a beauty that sees underneath all of our ugliness and who kisses us anyway and turns us from a beast into a beauty. And listen, because Jesus took the only condemnation that could ever destroy you, he's the only one who can rescue you from your hurts and your fears today. See, the gospel is not man, I'm really sorry for being a bad person. I'll, I'll try harder. I'll be better next time. You're not capable of that. But the gospel is, I see now how I've been trying to save myself through chasing after success and beauty and popularity and morality, and now I see that I'm never going to lose that nagging sense of condemnation, of not being able to keep up until I come to see that Jesus has already lived the life that I should have lived. And he's already died the death that I deserve to die. And he's given it all to me as a free gift. And that's the only master that will not destroy you. He's the only master that leads you to perfect freedom. See, (coughs) every other rescue out there, it depends on your own effort. It sometimes depends on good luck outside of your control. And it always tells you that whatever it is, it's not enough. There's always more to be done. You can't let up for a second, and it's exhausting. Listen, teenagers, in our world, girls have to be beautiful, and guys have to be cool, and both of you are desperately fearful. The other will find out that you're not. But let me let you in on a little bit of a secret. Girls only want to use guys to feel better about themselves, and guys only want to use girls to feel better about themselves. And neither of you really loves the other. You're just using each other and moving on. That's what high school's all about, you know, dating, next, 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 working your way up. Only Jesus truly loves you. Because only Jesus died to rescue you from your prisons of shame and fear. Listen, we're about to go to the table here this morning. And as we do, I I want you to notice one final thing here, and that is the The verb tense in verses nine and 10 are in the present tense. He, He says, guys, you turn from these idols to now serve and to now wait for the rescue of Jesus from heaven. Because listen, this is an ongoing call for you and me today. We are constantly tempted to run back to our old lovers. And it's easy for us to forget that Jesus is our only source of rescue. Listen, every time you've been worried this week, every time that you've been afraid, every time that you are unhappy or insecure, it's because you've forgotten and you're running back to your old idols and you're asking them to do for you what they've never been able to do in the past. And as you come to the table, I want you to think about those things that your heart is telling you today that you just gotta have or you're a nobody. Nobody. That that if you lose, life is not worth living anymore. Stop waiting on those things to rescue you and wait only for the Son in heaven to rescue you. Let's cast our idols from our thrones and let's meet Him here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, (coughs) I pray that you would show us that all the things that we run to for life, for rescue, for hope, for security, are not only worthless, they actually enslave us and they own us and they control us and they condemn us because we're never good enough. We're never faithful enough. We're never consistent enough. We just don't have what it takes. But Lord, you do and you have lived that life in our place and you've died that death for us. And as a result, we can rest in Jesus and not only be forgiven, but be beautiful and holy and righteous in your eyes. Lord, I pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to be able to see this and to believe this. And I pray that as we come to the table that you would strip away from our hearts those things that we have been running to this week to find a sense of hope and security in the midst of all the nagging voices of shame that constantly heart, uh, uh, tell our hearts um, how, how bad we are. Would you please come and speak to our hearts now through your meal? In Jesus' name, amen.